Welcome to the Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP, 106.5 FM, Louisville. Also streaming live at forwardradio.org. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 341. Today's topic is the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. The purpose of the Climate Report is to explore ways to solve the problem of climate change. And the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 has a number of provisions in it that purport to address climate change at some level. So let's talk about it. I'm looking at a four-page document that came out of the Senate, and it is entitled Summary of Energy Security and Climate Change Investments in the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. It reads, Both high energy costs and the growing impacts of climate change pose a significant burden to every American. The historic investments included in the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 will bring down consumer energy costs, increase American energy security, while substantially reducing greenhouse gas emissions. The combined investments of fiscal year 2022 budget reconciliation bill will put the U.S. on a path to roughly 40% emissions reduction by 2030 and would represent the single biggest climate investment in U.S. history by far. And it says that the Inflation Reduction Act does these five things. Number one, it lowers energy costs for Americans through policies that will lower prices at the pump and on electricity bills, help consumers afford technologies that will lower emissions and energy prices, and reduce costs that would otherwise be passed on to them. Number two, the Inflation Reduction Act increases American energy security through policies to support energy reliability and cleaner production, coupled with historic investments in American clean energy manufacturing, clean energy manufacturing to lessen our reliance on China, ensuring that the transition to a clean economy creates millions of American manufacturing jobs and is powered by American-made clean technologies. Number three, the Inflation Reduction Act invests in decarbonizing all sectors of the economy through targeted federal support of innovative climate solutions. Number four, it focuses investments into disadvantaged communities to ensure that communities that are too often left behind will share in the benefits of the transition to a clean economy. And number five, the Inflation Reduction Act supports resilient rural communities by investing in farmers and forest landowners to be part of a growing of growing climate solutions and by ensuring rural and ensuring rural and communities that's a typo in there by ensuring rural and communities are able to better adapt to a rapidly changing climate now i'm going to cre- critique each one of these five items And I'm going to share with you up front that there are two overriding issues that are almost always ignored and neglected in what I call the mainstream climate conversation. And those two overriding issues are, number one, the biological world 
as opposed to engineering, you know, trying to engineer our ways out of this, if we neglect the biological world, well, isn't climate change supposed to be a threat to the living systems that we're supposed to be, that we're, that we're supposed to be depending on, we do depend on them. We're supposed to be acknowledging that, hey, we depend on these biological systems. We depend on these living systems and climate change poses a threat to these living systems. So it seems like a great deal of the investment that would be, we would be making would be investment in living systems. But instead, we don't see very much investment in the living systems. We see engineering solutions, we see profitable corporate products, but not much investment in the living systems. The second problem that prevails in most of what I call mainstream climate conversations is a complete and total neglect of the power structures that are involved here. And even more fundamentally, we're not talking about what do we the people want? What do we the people want out of government? What are we the people entitled to expect from government? And what we should be able to expect from government is that it, in Lincoln's words, it, that it be of the people, by the people, for the people. Do we currently have a government that is of the people, by the people, and for the people? Or do we have a government that is structured completely differently? Do we not have a government currently that is of the elites, by the elites, and for the elites. So those are my two critiques of the mainstream climate policy. And you're going to be hearing that over and over again because these are the root causes of our problems. And unless you get at the root causes, you're not doing very much good. Henry David Thoreau says that for every person who is hacking at the root of the problem, there are a thousand that are hacking away at the fruits. In other words, getting to the root of the problem is kind of the exception, not the rule. But let's critique these five items. Number one, the Inflation Reduction Act lowers energy costs for Americans, increases American energy security, uh, invests in decarbonizing all sectors of the economy, Number four, invests into disadvantaged communities. Number five, supports residential rural communities. So in each case, I'm going to share with you what they're getting at here and how they might take another approach if they're really interested in solving the problem that they purport to solve. So problem number one that the Inflation Reduction Act purports to solve is that we are going to lower energy costs for Americans. So we use energy, fossil fuel energy, primarily for heating and cooling and for transportation. And the question is, how would the people of the United States or any country, how would the people design a transportation system? We're supposed to be reducing fossil fuels and this bill has subsidies, $7,500 for every person who buys a new electric car. Well, what that does is it perpetuates a system whereby everybody needs a car. We have a car dependent transportation system. And every time you turn around, are they spending federal dollars on buses and trains? Or are they spending federal dollars on building highways, four lane highways, interstate highways 
that just perpetuate the problem of everybody needing a car to get around? Is this a system that is designed by or for the people? Let me give you a hint. Each car costs $10,000 per year to own and operate on average when you take into account the purchase price, take into account the insurance, the fuel, the repairs, the interest on the, debt, the, the, interest on the loan that you take out to get a car for people who do that. Take into account all the costs, it averages out to $10,000 per year per car. That means $10,000 per year is leaving the family budget and going to somebody, probably a Wall Street owned corporation. $10,000 a year is leaving our community because virtually none of that 10, you know, maybe 10% or less of that $10,000 a year goes to this, uh, goes to our community. So if people had other means of transportation, wouldn't they jump at the opportunity to not have to spend $10,000 per year on average? But that requires public spending. We spend our public dollars on building highways. Hey, I did a rap about this. Highway, highway, building the highway. When are we going to build another highway? When are we going to add another lane? These highways cost tens of million dollars per mile per lane. Correction, a Google search indicates that interstate highways cost between four and $10 million per mile. So that's a lot of money. And if you're in the country, you need a car or a truck. But if you live in the city, our city streets and highways are crammed with cars. And then there's the problem of parking. How many people would do without that if they could? And it requires public spending. So instead of solving that problem by spending money on buses, trains, car sharing, we're not doing any of that. We're just spending more money on highways and then subsidizing electric cars as if electric cars are going to solve this problem. Another reason electric cars are a step in the wrong direction is that most of the carbon footprint of an automobile is not during the useful life. Most of the carbon footprint and the associated pollution of an automobile occurs during the manufacturing process. I was listening to an economist by the name of Richard Smith who said in rough figures, if you look at all the pollution associated with an automobile, 60% is during the manufacturing process. So 60% before it even rolls off the assembly line, it has already consumed 60% of its lifetime you know, output of pollution. That's a little bit different from the carbon footprint, but pollution matters too, not just the carbon footprint. So 60% of, of the pollution cost of an automobile is in the first uh, is before it rolls off the assembly line, and then 30% during its useful life, and then 10% as a result of disposal. So if all that is true, then if you compare an electric car with uh, an internal combustion car, then even if the electric car had no output, no carbon output during its useful life, which is not true, but even assuming zero carbon output during its useful life, a useful car is still responsible for two-thirds or 70% of the pollution that would otherwise be associated with that car if it had an internal combustion engine. And then if you want to look at the true cost of an electric car, you have to look at the exploitation of other countries. The mining, mining is terrible. So 
you know, mining always pollutes water. Mining always pollutes water. No matter what you're mining, no matter how you do it, it mining pollutes water. So we've got the people of Bolivia having their lithium stolen because, hey, we're American corporations and we do what we want. And the people of Bolivia, including Evo Morales, have to fight tooth and nail to not have their resources stolen. So we have this global economy where the U.S. is the big daddy of the global economy and whatever we say goes. And if we say American corporations get to come into your company and take your resources for a song, then that's what happens. And then anybody, any country that tries to be outside of that orbit gets, gets made an enemy. So China, Russia, Venezuela, Syria, North Korea, Cuba, Nicaragua are enemies of the United States, not because they have an unusual degree of human rights abuses, but because they're not bending the knee to U.S. foreign policy and doing the bidding of U.S. corporations, who are the masters of the political class. All of which is to say we need to look at the reality behind the rhetoric. Item number two in the summary of the Inflation Reduction Act says that the Inflation Reduction Act increases American energy security through policies to support energy reliability and cleaner production coupled with historic investments in American clean energy manufacturing to lessen our reliance on China, ensuring that the transition to a clean economy creates millions of American manufacturing jobs and is powered by American-made clean technologies. So the word clean technology occurs several times throughout this paragraph, as well as the word energy security. Energy security is like national security. Security for whom? Whose security are we talking about? And if we were truly interested in energy security, would we, would we be going about it this way? So it talks about lessening our reliance on China by investing historic amounts of money in American clean energy. So what is American clean energy? We're talking about solar power, we're talking about wind power, we're talking about wood chips, we're going to take, uh, you know, we're going to clear-cut forests, which we're doing already, but we're going to clear-cut forests, burn the uh, wood pellet, turn it into wood pellets, burn the wood pellets, and then we're going to pretend that that is somehow clean or renewable. And then there are all kinds of discussions about what renewable means. You know, just because a forest will grow back eventually doesn't mean we're doing something sustainable when we clear cut a forest. Burning wood chips does not make sense from the standpoint of how much pollution it generates or how much energy it generates. Burning wood chips makes virtually no sense from the standpoint of carbon alone. We've become narrowly focused on carbon so that if anybody can say, 
We are decarbonizing the economy by cutting down trees and turning them into wood pellets and shipping them across an ocean so that England or Germany can burn them for electricity. If you say, hey, this is carbon friendly, then is that rhetoric or is that the reality? And when you say it's carbon friendly to get your electricity from a solar panel, is that true from the standpoint of the entire life cycle of the product? Are we taking into account the environmental costs of that solar panel? Are we taking into account the pollution that occurs when the relevant minerals are mined in open pit mining? Because if we're not taking into account those costs, then the cheapness of solar is an illusion. And it's also true, somebody might say, yeah, but look at all the pollution they create with fossil fuels. And that is true. You know, one of the main things about fossil fuels is, is not so much the excess carbon that they produce, even though that's an issue, but it's the pollution that they produce at the point of, you know, extraction. The Niger Delta in Africa, there's lots of, you know, oil that comes from Nigeria in Africa. And the delta of the Niger River in Africa gets so much oil spilled on it that they say it's equal to an Exxon Valdez every single year. So the Exxon Valdez, what in the 90s, late 80s, a whole big oil tanker just spills. All this hoopla, all this hand-wringing, but the same thing happens to the Niger Delta every single year. So one of the biggest issues with fossil fuels is the amount of pollution that it produces at the point of extraction. That applies to the extraction of oil on land. It applies to the extraction of oil under water. It applies to the extraction of natural gas on land. It applies to fracking hydraulic fracturing, which is a way, a, an environmentally destructive way of extracting fossil fuels. And all this is going to continue to go on unless we get control of the companies that consume all these fossil fuels. The food industry, the agricultural industry, the fashion industry, telecommunications, manufacturing of all sorts of technologies. And the way that we get control of them is not to micromanage them. Government is incapable of micromanaging anything and doing it well. That, that's an overstatement. Government is capable of doing things, but it's never capable of doing anything as long as it's being controlled by the very companies that's supposed to be regulating. So the powers that be are good at creating villains. They, they, whatever, whatever is a convenient scapegoat or villain of the day, they, meaning the media, the political class, they point at that villain and say, that's the bad guy. That's the reason we have problems. So they're pointing at fossil fuel companies. And Republicans and Democrats pretend to be on opposite sides of that, even though they're not. But they're trying to scapegoat the fossil fuel companies. And I'm all for bringing these companies under control. But you have to look at the other sectors of the economy, the other industries that are complicit that benefit from cheap fossil fuels. That's agriculture, that's food, that's defense benefits from cheap fossil fuels. Every form of manufacturing benefits from cheap fossil fuels. So the way that we solve that problem is not to 
try to micromanage it, but to remove the subsidies. Stop subsidizing these clowns and charlatans that have bought Congress. They have hijacked the anything remotely resembling democracy. They have defeated anything remotely resembling the public will or the will of the people. And they're endlessly manipulating us through the political parties, through the media, even through advertisements, to the point that when people hear clean and renewable energy, they think that it's a, a real thing. But what's clean or renewable about mining lithium? What's clean or renewable about mining cobalt or silver or gold or copper or aluminum or iron? So, you know, lithium, lithium is the main ingredient of lithium ion batteries, which are the state of the art battery these days. And lithium is useful. It's useful in your laptop. It's useful in your cell phone. But we need to not be stealing it from Bolivia. We need to not be stealing it from the native tribes in Nevada. We need to not be stealing lithium from Afghanistan. And then let those countries and those peoples, the people who rightfully own the resources, let them sell the resources for a fair market value on the world market. That way the price would go up to something that's fair and reasonable. The price of lithium would go up to something that incorporates the true costs of lithium, unlike what we have now, which is massive theft and massive subsidies. For anybody who wants to defend capitalism, show me a world where you're not stealing from people. Capitalism is where people get to, uh, get to command the fair market values for something that's rightfully theirs. The people of Afghanistan, the people of Bolivia, the native tribes in Nevada have the right to demand a fair price for the lithium that we get from them, but that's not happening. And most of the lithium is going to be used for electric cars in a few years. Is that the best use of the lithium that we have? Let's look at item number three of the Inflation Reduction Act. We're reading through the summary of the Inflation Reduction Act by Senate Democrats. Interesting that this thing was along a strict party line vote, 50 Democrats to 50 Republicans, as if good policy ever comes from that type of, of partisanship. But item number three says the Inflation Reduction Act invests in decarbonizing all sectors of the economy through targeted federal support of innovative climate solutions. This is the same government that just raised the military, the Pentagon budget to something like 850 billion. Only a year or two ago, it was 750 billion. So we're going to decarbonize, even though the government is spending $850 billion a year just on the Pentagon budget. You have to double the Pentagon budget before you realize the, before you arrive at a figure that begins to approximate the true out-of-pocket cost for war. We're not even talking about the human cost, the lost lives. We're not talking about the environmental cost. We're just talking about the, the, uh, the out-of-pocket cost. And the Pentagon budget does not include money that we get for weapons sales. So, it, And the Pentagon budget is like, the only question is whether the United States spends 40 or 50% of the entire global spending on war. We have 5% of the population 
we spend at least, at least 40% of the total world expenditures on war, and we're pretending to advance a, an Inflation Reduction Act that calls for investing in decarbonizing all sectors of the economy through targeted federal support of innovative climate solutions. Well, that targeted federal support of innovative climate solutions has corporate welfare written all over it. That's why I say stop subsidizing this stuff, and then we'll talk about what government can and cannot do capably. So let's talk about what decarbonizing even means. Are we talking about a complete elimination of fossil fuels? Tell me how that works. Are we talking about a meaningful reduction in fossil fuel? Show me how that works. Because here's what's not going to happen. What's not going to happen is meaningful reductions in fossil fuel consumption absent meaningful reductions in total energy usage. Because wherever we get energy from, fossil fuels are involved. Wherever we get energy from, pollution is involved. Wherever we get energy from, ex uh, exploitation is involved. Exploitation of labor and the environment. Wherever we get our energy from, war is involved. Whether it's a shooting war or whether it's just gunboat diplomacy where we say, here's a treaty, here's how it's going to be. You're going to sign this treaty or we're going to cause a coup in your country. If you don't think that happens every day, then we need to talk about Salvador Allende in Chile. We need to talk about Mohammed Mossadegh in Iran. We need to talk about uh, Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala. So this is a government that, by design, I think, but the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And the important thing is to create a perception. You know, perception is everything, but the perception and the underlying reality are two different things. The Pentagon is the biggest, um, biggest user of fossil fuels in the world, the biggest institution in the world in terms of how much fossil fuel they use. If we're constantly raising the, the uh, Pentagon budget, to record numbers, 850 billion now, then we're just not serious about reducing fossil fuel usage. So then the question arises, why do we have a record defense budget? Why do we have a defense budget that, by my calculations, it costs on a per capita basis, on average, we spend like $2,500 a year per person on the Pentagon. If you multiply that over the course of a lifetime, then we've got every individual spending $150,000 over the course of a lifetime on the Pentagon budget. Is that a good use of their money? What do they get for it? Are we getting defense? Are we getting the spread of freedom and democracy around the world? Is that what it's really about? If you look at what really happened in Iraq, you'll say, mm, maybe that's not about spreading freedom and democracy. If you look at what really happened in Afghanistan, you'll say, maybe that's not really about spreading freedom and democracy. Maybe it's not about defending our shores or defending the American people. I've got about a minute left. Let me leave you with something to think about. So the mainstream climate conversation, the one that has led you to believe that solar power, is the solu solar power and electric cars are the solution to everything, this conversation neglects to look at the reality behind the rhetoric. 
The reality behind the rhetoric is that this is not a democratic process. The reality behind the rhetoric is that this is not a government of, by, or for the people. It's a government that has been captured by economic interests. It's a government that, by the nature of it, it does not care about you or your family or your children or the environment or clean water or human rights. That is all rhetoric and not reality. And the sooner we realize that, then we'll realize that our real addiction is not to fossil fuels. Our addiction is to false narratives. That's all of our time. Thank you for joining me. Have a nice day.